Our scripture this morning comes from Psalm 63. And if you're able, will you please stand for the reading of the word? Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless your name as long as I live. I will lift my hands and call out your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of the we your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I look around the room today, and as I think about my time back here as a teenager, I think we joined the church when I was about 10 years old. So as I think of my time here, I just can't help but feel grateful. You taught me, as the psalmist says, to meditate upon God in the watches of the night. You reminded me that God's steadfast love is better than life. And especially, especially in this season, as you have suffered tremendous grief and numerous changes, and as you are beginning to discern your future together, I can't help, I can't help but feel profoundly grateful for your faithfulness to God and your faithfulness to one another and your faithfulness in sharing Christ's love throughout the world. You have continued to connect and worship every week, even in the height of COVID. You have made worship accessible for those who cannot attend in person. And who knows, you may have somebody from across the world watching you right now. You have supported your young people because you realize they're not the future of the church, but they're already the church. And you have shared your space and your homes and very, very important, your snacks. And as you continue to make a difference in Jefferson City through collecting supplies for South School, through your advocacy for the homeless, and, whether, and as you continue to make a difference around the world with your partner church in Ukraine and your ministry in South Dakota and your ministry in Kenya, you continue to share Christ's liberating, awesome love to a world that so desperately needs it. And I know clapping is whatever in church, but I think you should give yourselves a round of applause. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being the presence of Christ in the world. This congregation, through its ups and downs, taught me that God loved me and that God would be with me no matter where and where, where, where I went and what I did. You saw me at my worst. And yet, even though I know God loves me and I know that God is always with me wherever I go, I still struggle sometimes with embracing that reality. And it's helpful to know that I'm not the only one who does. In fact, this whole book, the Bible, is full of psalms and stories that tell of God's steadfast love for us and tell of struggles, of, God's, of our struggles with God. God was steadfast when Moses led the Hebrew people around for 40 years in the wilderness. God was with Moses, God was with the Hebrews. God was with Jesus when he also endured 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted. And God was with Paul as he made all those crazy journeys and went sailing and everything else. And yes, God was with them, but it also tells that the Bible had people struggling with God. So people like Moses, who had to drag the Israelites through the wilderness when they're constantly whining and complaining. People like Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane said in Matthew 26, 39, if this is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And the Bible is full of people like Paul who, as he travels, when he preaches the good news, finds himself aboard a ship during a storm. And in Acts 27, Luke describes the storm and the people as the wind and the waves were battering us unmercifully, and we lost all hope of rescue. Paul, that confident Paul, even had his struggles. And so like Moses and Jesus and Paul, David's encounter with God ranged the depth of human experience. Sometimes all in one day. And if anyone had a drama-filled life, it would be David. David's story was an R-rated drama that rivaled anything you would see on TV today. And when this psalm was written, David was not a king. He was not a king. He wasn't sitting on the throne as he wrote this psalm. He wasn't hanging out with the sheep and, and, and playing the shepherd role. No, David was on the run. King Saul, who had once been David's friend, whom he had shared many a meal with, was now trying to to kill him. So here's the backstory. In 1 Samuel 17, David had just defeated Goliath. And as an aside, one of my favorite memories from this church is when my brother, James, and 
um, Josh Hill, and Tanya knows exactly what I'm talking about, played Goliath in a children's play. And maybe some of you remember it. Anyways, what James was telling me is that they had drawn with a Sharpie a beard on James, and then he got on Josh Hill's shoulders, and Josh is probably about the height of Pastor Keith here, you know, and they had to duck as they entered in right that door. They had to duck because they were too tall. And so they're walking down the aisle, and then there's a little King David, and I don't think he had a real slingshot, but he had a pretend one. And the little guy who was playing King David really hammed it up. He was like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And then he went, And then you hear it a pop. And then my brother, he had, he like felt it. And then, because if you know my brother, you can know, you know he's a bit of a ham. I think that, I think he would agree with that. He and Josh Hill felt ever so slowly, and the crowd went wild. And I wish we had that on video somewhere, but um, long story long, David had already done that, and he had already defeated Goliath, and he had gained Saul's approval. And then David became best friends with Jonathan, Saul's son, And then David appeared as kind of a golden boy, and he kept winning and winning and winning. And King Saul, who once admired him, suddenly became jealous of him and was angry with him. And then when David realized that Saul was trying to kill him, David escaped with the help of his wife, Michael, who was Saul's daughter, and his friend, Jonathan, who was Saul's son. And he kept evading Saul in the wilderness. Even while Saul was trying to kill David, and David had the opportunity to to defeat Saul, David had compassion on the guy who was trying to kill him. David could have overtaken Saul twice, and yet David spared his life. And so while on the run from Saul in the desert plains of Judea, David wrote this psalm. I don't know about you, but I like to use my, what we call, sanctified imagination in thinking about biblical characters. So I imagine David singing this song at the evening or at night. Maybe David couldn't sleep because of the stress that overwhelmed him. The desert wind whipped about his tent, if he even had one and the sand stung his face. And the shrub around the tent provided little protection, and the fire embers were dwindling. And here, here in the dark, with the cloud of turmoil raging over his head, David sang. And I'll quote the Common English Bible translation, which is my new favorite translation. David says, God, my God, it's you. I search for you. My whole being thirsts for you in a dry and tired land with no water anywhere. Now, David may have had hunger and thirst pains as he laid in his tent that night. David may have wanted 
More deeply, though, reconciliation. Reconciliation with Saul, peace for the land. His longing, David's longing, felt overwhelming. It was this emptiness of grief and desire mixed together, and he just couldn't handle it all. And he didn't know what to do. So instead, so instead, he cried out his feelings to God. He knew God could handle it. And when David was alone in his tent, in fear of his life, he felt the protection of being gathered under God's wings. When David felt that he had nothing left, he turned to God. And then, and then David says something a bit weird. And we didn't read it when we opened our Bibles today. And I will be honest, I did not want to read it. <laughs> because it makes me nervous. This passage makes me nervous. Because at first glance, it looks like David is seeking vengeance. And it looks it looks like God is celebrating and condoning such vengeance. So let's read the rest of the psalm in verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the, liar, the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Oof. To quote a friend, yikes on bikes. But then, but then a biblical scholar had me wondering about this. She said that David justifiably had a right to be upset. I mean, in fact, he had done nothing wrong for Saul to want to kill him. And even when Saul, he had the opportunity to kill Saul when he was 10 feet away from Saul, he didn't. David, maybe, maybe David trusted that God would act justly to those who had been oppressed, to those who had been hurt. And if God, if God cannot handle all of our feelings, both praise and despair, and both anger and joy, then God, then God really isn't God. Maybe verses 9 through 11 isn't so much of a divine pronouncement. Maybe verses 9 and 11 in Psalm 63 is about David putting his hope in a God who is just. And I know for me that so often when we want to take revenge in our own hands, when we seek to punish someone who has hurt us, we can sometimes, we can sometimes be so consumed with anger and self-righteousness that what have may have started out as noble intentions quickly, quickly turn evil. 
And when anger, even righteous anger, consumes us, so we become obsessed and want to seek revenge, it could leave us in the position of wanting to be like God. And we know that all doesn't end well. So David, David in verses 9 through 11, trusted God with his longings. David trusted God in his sorrows and his joys. And yes, yes, David trusted God in his anger. Now, trusting God with the good and the bad is difficult. Sojourner Truth, a 19th century preacher woman, knew that well. She was born around 1800 in the Dutch-speaking New York. She walked away, not ran, she walked away from her enslaver as an adult with a baby in her arms and found refuge with the Christian denomination known as the Quakers. And then at age 46, in midlife, she left New York City, changed her name from Isabella to Sojourner Truth, and began to preach about abolition and began to preach about women's rights to vote and began to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you can imagine, as you can imagine in her year, she had her fair share of heartache. She bore the scars of the whippings and a hand injury from her time under slavery. Her only son died aboard a ship in the South Pacific. And she faced the ridicule of many, many people who wanted to deny her humanity. And she, like David, was angry in a way. She wanted to see her oppressor suffer. And even at times, she prayed that her abusers would get what was coming to them. But, but she also knew her faith in the God who gave second chances compelled her to trust God for justice. Despite her anger and her suffering, she knew without a shadow of a doubt, and this is a quote, that she lived and God lived in her. She lived and God lived in her. And because the Holy Spirit dwelt within her, she knew that God's steadfast love was better than life and her lips would praise God. So maybe, just maybe, we don't have to be scared of verses nine through 11. Maybe for people like David, who incurred Saul's wrath without reason, for people like Sojourner Truth, whose humanity was continued, continually denied by society around them, verses 9 and 11 would make sense. And so it has me wondering, who in the world is being hurt unjustly today? Who in the world is being oppressed? 
Who are those people who have to trust that God will make all things right? And how do we, how do we have compassion and solidarity and empathy with them? It's tricky to say the least. And when we don't know what to do with everything we're experiencing or feeling, when we don't know how to pray, we can trust, like Sojourner Truth, that God lives within us, that God within us is the Holy Spirit. And one of the scriptures that I've been kind of, do you ever like have a scripture you just meditate on, you know, like continually or you're kind of obsessed with? I mean, I am. Okay. <laughs> so one of the scriptures that has really come to my heart lately is Romans 8. Perhaps it's the turmoil that's going on in our world, and there's quite a bit of turmoil. And perhaps it's the turmoil that's going on in my own heart. But Romans 8, verses 26 through 27 just hits right. And here the apostle Paul says, the spirit comes to help in our weakness. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what we should pray, but the spirit himself pleads our case with inexplicable or with unexpressed groans. As you continue delving into the Psalms during Lent, and as you continue to discern what God is calling you to as a church community, know that God can handle it. God can handle your joy. God can handle your desire. God can handle your grief. God can handle your anger. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, knowing all the things you think and feel. And know this, know this, that you will always, always, always be protected under the shadow of God's wings. Amen.